Hello and welcome to the Trap One Podcast. On this episode, we'll be talking about the recent set of Doctor Who action figures from the Sensorites and the 1964 story which inspired them. I'm fortunate to have with me two of Doctor Who fandom's foremost authorities on character options Doctor Who range, Jason McLaughlin. Hi, Jason. Hello, I'm British Jason. (laughs) And Steve Alexander. Welcome back to the podcast, Steve. Hello. Hi. And also joining us is the Sensorites number one fan, Jason Miller. Or, as I went last time, American Jason, or as you can also call me, Brooklyn Jason, on account of my accent. <laughs> uh, so, Steve, I loved the photo that you took of these figures, um, and even more, I loved the uh, sense of right and wrong pun that you that, that went with it on Twitter. Um, <laughs> are, you, are you happy with this set? Um, I think yes. Um, I mean, yes, the body is just the Axon Man that um, we're now going to be seeing in practically every release range coming up because uh, obviously <laughs> that's going to be the Raston Warrior robot, um, it's the Vord, and it's the Sensorites as well. But <laughs> there's enough little differences in there, and and they've done the big floppy feet, which is what you really want, and, and the head sculpt is brilliant. So it's incredible and the most incredible thing about it is we're getting action figures from a television program that is it's not the best remembered doctor who program i'd say and it was on how when was it how long ago was it on oh 57 years ago was it yeah yeah just just 57 years late um but that's wonderful that's that's uh it's bizarre. It it doesn't make any sense, and they should be doing stuff from the new series. But I love that we've got the sensor rights. It, it's fantastic. What what do you guys think? Oh well, I, I again love the set, and uh, you know it, it's amazing. I think we we spoke about this in the uh, the Keys of Moranis uh, podcast. It's it's great how character can now kind of like kit bash these figures and use like molds and bodies to then create like new figures and obviously then it just like keeps the cost down and means that B&M can stock them for a great price of like 20 quid for a free figure set and that all they have to really like you know do expense wise is do the new head sculpts um I re- was really struck by re-watching this story again earlier this week just how better sculpted and how better the heads look on the figures than what they actually do in the the program itself. <laughs> so I really, really do like these figures. Yeah. Oh, I, I just want to jump in because um, you mentioned about the price point as well. Um, having uh, delved into one or two other ranges, um, the Doctor Who figures are extraordinarily cheap. To get three figures for twenty quid is is incredible. Um, when you're looking at uh, I don't know when you average Star Wars figure, I know they're they're much better articulated and they, they do have slightly better sculpts, but they're 20 quid, you know, and the Marvel figures are, uh, you know, 20 to 25 quid. So it, it really is. I mean, I, people complain, Oh God, I've got to go out and buy sensor rights and Vord and that's 40 quid this month or some Daleks. That's another 20 quid. But uh, as, as a toy collector, you can go a lot further down the expense route. I think, uh, I, I don't know if anybody else has experiences with that. Yeah, I, I think uh, you know as much as people complain about there not being much Doctor Who stock in Forbidden Planet, you know you see these tweets where people go, mm, "There's only one shelf of Doctor Who stuff." It's virtually impossible to keep up financially with every single Doctor Who release. When you look at everything that comes out, you know, just like like books, figures, everything, it's just that Forbidden Planet don't stock it all, do they? 
Um, but yeah, I think you know for the frequency that these are released, twenty quid isn't isn't a bad price point. Um, I think as we we maybe touch a little bit on on the keys of Marinus episode, finding them is the is the hardest part of it. Um, you know, they're, they're not evenly distributed, and and you can't always find all the sets you want. But I think it creates a sense of uh, community, and that we can all work together <laughs> to help each other find the ones that we want. Yeah, well, that's because you're buying all the stock up, Mark, like you're admitted in the uh, Keys of Moranis set. Uh. I've got friends in Australia and Canada that I'm well for. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, you mentioned the feet as well. Uh, another great thing about these that they've got in common with the Vord is the round feet just make them so stable uh, on the shelf that, you know, it's... It, they don't fall over like a lot of the figures do if you know you kind of bump into them or um, you know you kind of pull in a dvd off the shelf and you you knock one figure over and they all sort of domino uh these 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 are much steadier uh, uh, yeah i mean i've got four cabinets in my front room of like that virtually three of them are like the doctor who like um um full of doctor who figures and you know occasionally because you know if, if somebody just like you know moves the door slightly you know when they're coming into the house you know that it's like it's a domino effect and they all fall down and so you do sometimes have to use like a little bit of blue tack or something to make sure that they stay up but these guys are as sturdy as anything yeah. i have some advice for that there's a great product i think you can get it in the works and it's reusable glue dots and they're fantastic. You just put one on each foot and then they, they stick nicely and they're clear as well. And they don't really mark the figures or surfaces. So um, that's that's my tip for the day, reusable glue dots. But, um, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> but it is uh, like trying to get a dynamic pose out of Doctor Who action figures, it, like doing running or walking or just lifting one leg up a bit is always challenging to say the least. So um, yeah, it's nice to get just nice to get figures with bigger feet, I think. Okay, so for your like excellent doctor who figure photography that that's got to be a big bonus as well i guess uh yeah it saves it saves about 15 20 minutes per shot um <laughs> and, I, and i do try and churn these things out one a day um i sensor rights actually sensor rights i mean they don't really do dynamic poses i mean you're not gonna have sensor rights running down corridors firing laser guns although i should probably do that today that sounds <laughs> like a good idea <laughs> um yeah, but it, 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 it does make a difference. It does, does make life easier. And also, thank you for all the kind praise for my photography. It's uh, much appreciated and uh, goes into my ego bank and makes me very happy. Thank you. Oh, no, I absolutely love it. It's uh, If anybody doesn't follow Steve, you should definitely check that out. I'll put a link in the show notes. Thank you. So I got a few questions here about these, because we're doing this on audio, and here in the States, I don't have access to these figures. So I haven't seen a really good accounting of what the set looks like. So number one, <clears throat> I was surprised to learn Sensorites being a black and white story. I think it's Patrick Mulker and the guy who does the colorized photos on Twitter. The Sensorites were actually two colored. The heads were one colored and their jumpsuits, I think were a light blue, a different color than the head are the character options figures multicolored in that way, or are they all the same color, the way that it appears on monochrome TV? Sorry, what they've gone for is, yeah, they've, they've, they've gone for the, I think there's, I think there are publicity photos, aren't there, of the sensorites that exist, which show they've got a, a light blue sort of um, yeah. onesie, and then um, and then they've got the sort of like a flesh-colored head. Um, so, yeah, so that, that, that's exactly what they've gone for, yeah. Oh, that's terrific. So... The second question has to do with 
economies of scale because, as, as we've mentioned, this is a 57-year-old TV story that rarely shows up on Doctor Who's top 10 lists or top 25 lists or top 50 lists or top 200 lists. Doctor Who has a – let's be charitable here. It's got a somewhat dwindling fan base because the censor rights as a DVD is not actually in heavy rotation anymore and – Folks who came in with Matt Smith um, have tended to leave with Capaldi and Whitaker and Chibnall and the NMD crowd. If these are being marketed at $20 a box set, how many box sets of the Sensorites have to sell in order for character options to turn a profit? And clearly people are buying these sets because they keep making them. How many folks are going to and I say this as the Sensorite's number one fan, as somebody said earlier. How many people are going to buy these to make it worth the cost? Well, I've, I think I've seen on you know some forums and stuff, and I, I know uh, Alistair Dewar, who's the like chief um, creator uh, and executive at Character Options, who's in charge of the Doctor Who range, has said that usually um, these sets that B and M order normally run around about the, the 5,000 uh, mark for each set. And obviously if they're particularly popular, then they can put like a, a few more thousand into, you know, production shortly after, um, you know, they've gone on release. So I don't think we're talking huge amount of figures. You know, these aren't going to sell in the same quantities as probably a, a bigger brand like we've said, like Hasbro, Star Wars, or Marvel, or, you know, even Fortnite figures, you know, because these are squarely aimed at the collector market. I don't think there's many children who are actually going to probably pick up the Sensorites or the keys of Marana sets. You know, they may pick up the history of the Dalek sets, which are also being released at the same time. But, yeah, you know, we're not talking huge production numbers here. I mean, it's it's wonderful that they have it. I mean, I... As someone who loves the Sensorites, I would totally get these if I had, number one, the shelf space, and number two, the access. But I, just, I love the fact that our show is so – I'm not going to say ubiquitous, but our show is so old and respected that you can actually market these figures from 57 years ago and have them sell, even for the Sensorites, enough copies to make it profitable. That's, that's remarkable in and of itself. It's, it's an incredible achievement for Doctor Who. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And certainly there's no other shows from the time. that I, There's no um, Avengers 60s action figures. Oh, by Avengers, I mean the, the uh, ITV, uh, is it ITC show? The Avengers, anyway. You know, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Peel and Steed, um, they haven't got action figures like Doctor Who has. Um, and it's, it, I, I, in terms of sales, the only, thing, the only observation I can make, because I really don't know about it, is... Um, that the recent sets that came out, the unit sets and the Romana sets that were and the Sarah Jane that were done recently, have reverted to being available on the character options website, which suggests that um, they perhaps didn't sell as well as uh, some of the other sets that have, that, that have totally vanished. Um, so maybe that's a bit concerning. Maybe that means we, we're less likely to see uh, Barbara and Susan in future, which obviously now they've done Ian, we're all we're all wait, chomping at the bit to see if they'll they'll bring the other two out and complete the set. But um, well, we can only hope. We'll see what happens. 
Yeah, I think some B&M bargains that had stock left, they reduced them down to about £8, some of those Romana sets by the end. So I presume they're still making a profit at that and, and then just clearing the shelf space, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it, I think with retail in general, it's important to clear the shelf space. I, there comes a point where it's just necessary to get rid of the stock because you've already paid mm. the money and you've just got to clear that space however you can. Um, yeah. But it, yeah. It, also, you think, should I wait and see if these come cheap later on? Yeah. Or will I never see them again? And there's that kind of horrible dilemma as well. It's a huge gamble, that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't go for it. Certainly not with the Dalek set. No. <laughs> so the, the sensorites also come with the little uh, weapons that, that we see from the from the TV story. I've got to admit, I nearly threw those out with a box. I didn't spot them at first. Um, the little Edwicks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's a nice detail that we've got those as well, isn't it? Um, you know, you kind of... Almost don't don't expect that level of detail with these. Yeah, it, it all adds to it, doesn't it? It all shows that because because they didn't have to put. We we I'd buy them without the egg whisks, and mm. the fact that they they put them in is just like oh oh it's it's the little attention to detail that makes it worthwhile. Um, coming up, they've got the two um, security robots from Earthshock and Peter Davison. Um, and I thought, oh, well, I might not bother with that set, except for the fact I think it's the one that comes with the little toolkit that he uses to defuse the bomb. That's exciting for me. That's more exciting than the black-headed robots. The fact that it comes with a little toolkit is sort of like, oh, yeah, use that in all kinds of photos. That would be great. Um, so, yeah, so, <laughs> so egg whisks, um, i love to see them. I suppose another point on the sales is that your serious collector is going to buy more than one box and customise them so that, you can have um, all the sensorite characters. Well, yeah, because they're, they're great uh, sets for army building, you know, because you can, you know, buy several sets and then, like you say, you've got an army of Vord or an army of uh, sensorites. You paint the rings around their arms and um, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. I also get a Hartnell figure with this one um, with some natty sort of red check trousers yes he's um he's no different to the other well because they did did they release sort of hartnell with darker trousers before i think in one of the combined multi-doctor sets Uh, and this is a a, again it's just hartnell again uh but it's it is nice to have a a, a access to a different version um although whether hartnell with brown trousers or hartnell with gray trousers will turn up in a photo i don't know maybe i'll just pick one out they both look good is he wearing a cloak the way that the Doctor wears later in the story as an important plot point? Unfortunately not. No. Oh, darn it. <laughs> they have released one with a cloak uh, previously, though, which came out a few years ago, which came out with the uh, the Hartnell-era TARDIS, which was a FX TARDIS. I think Forbidden Planet released that um, oh, probably around about 2010, I think. Yes, and that's coming back as well. So there will be a Hartnell with a cloak. Um, yeah, I'll be driving up and down the country looking for a Hartnell with a cloak very soon and his police box, I'm sure. So you buy two of those and then you cannibalize one of them for the cloak and add it to the sensorites, Hartnell. Perfect. <laughs> yes, that would be exactly the right thing to do. Uh, and while we're discussing the, the, the next wave there, so you say we've got, we've got Hartnell with a TARDIS, we've got the, the Earthshock set with the androids. We've got a Five Doctors set coming out as well with a new Pertwee figure, a Raston Warrior robot, and a Cyberman. 
I heard a rumor that half the Cybermen will be cyber leaders and half yes. will be regular Cybermen. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, I, I'm not interested in uh, another Cyberman, an 80s-style one, because I've got quite a few. Uh, but I, I am, like, you know, going to be on the hunt for the Cyber Leader, so it's going to be quite interesting to see if you can actually track that one down and whether it's going to be a ratio of 50-50 or whether the, the Cyber Leader is going to be a little bit rarer. Yeah, I heard 50-50. They are by far going to be the more popular set. So if they're, if they're releasing 5,000, only 2,500 of the Cyber Leader in, they'll be very sought after, won't they? Uh, how many 80 Cybermen do you have, Jason? Uh, just looking over on the shelf, I've got, I think, four from the Earthshock. I've got the Black Attack um, Stealth Cyberman, and I've got four Silver Nemesis Cybermen. Wow, jealous! Yeah, like I say, I've got three uh, cabinets full of uh, Doctor Who figures. There's a couple of missed opportunities with this five Doctors set, such as you have described. Number one, it really needs to come with a Paul Jericho action figure, because if you ask any fan of a certain age to describe what they would do with five Doctor toys, the first thing they would all want to do is reenact no. Not the mind probe. <laughs> and then you can just, you know, topple him over. And then you need to have an Anthony Ainley action figure. And then you need to have another box set showing the master from a different story. Or you can buy a William Hartnell cloak action figure and cannibalize the cloak and put it on Ainley because, as Terrence Dix pointed out in the audio commentary for The Five Doctors, the transmat machine in the inner council room on Gallifrey dispenses black cloaks. So the master <laughs> mysteriously acquires a black cloak over the course of the story. So that's another use for how you borrow Hartnell's cloak, cannibalize it, put it on Ainley, and then have Ainley topple over Paul Jericho who goes, no, not the mind probe as he falls over. That's what the five doctors is all about. And I'm shocked that both of those things aren't available in the forthcoming five doctors set. <laughs> What occurred to me is quite funny is a, a non-fan in B&M Bargains seeing a box labelled The Five Doctors is going to look at it and see one Doctor Who and two robots <laughs> inside it. <laughs> in what sense is it The Five Doctors? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I love that. Obviously, I love that story. And, um, yeah, having the Pertwee from that story is fantastic. Um, I, I'll, I'll probably try and do him uh, doing the old, uh, what is it, the paragliding thing between the... Um, between the statue, hanging on a bit of rope, being the man of adventure. Um, I would like, uh, I, I'd love an Ainley. Uh, I, I'd say, what I wouldn't give for an Ainley master, and the answer to that is 80 quid on eBay. I wouldn't give that much. <laughs> <laughs> Got to be kidding. And, um, oh, Sarah Jane from The Five Doctors. Ah, oh, in that pink. Ah, oh, it'd just be amazing. So, yes. So we all want more from The Five Doctors coming up, don't we? Yeah, I mean, I, I am actually surprised we've not got a, an Ainley uh, re-release because, you know, they, they've got that head sculpt ready to go. And, uh, yeah, they used the, again, uh, reused the Masters John Sim body when they did it as that Planet Fire um, twin set uh, exclusive to Forbidden Planet with a hatted um, Fifth Doctor. But, yeah, you could easily probably retool the body to, like, make him more uh, accurate to his, his 80s costume. Yeah, and you could do him with the um, with the column that came that they released with the uh, Fifth Doctor in Tom's outfit, because uh, then he'd have the Master in his TARDIS, and that'd be lovely. Yeah, 
Well, hopefully this this series is just going to run and run and run with B&M bargains, and we'll we'll get some uh, some good stuff every year until we've got every companion and every combination of outfit and monster. <laughs> just need more shelves. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so to uh, to turn the conversation to the TV story uh, and bring American Jason sort of fully into the conversation. Um, this this is a rare Doctor Who story that tries to show us an alien civilization on their own planet rather than just kind of a homogenous race all hellbent on invasion or whatever. Um, how successful do you think that is, Jason? I'm going to acknowledge the faults of the Sensorites first, and then I'm going to brush them aside and talk about whether well, this is probably the best Doctor Who script of the 1963-64 season. And I mean that seriously. I'm not trolling you guys. So the Sensorites, I think, is best remembered, number one, for having goofy-looking monsters. Uh, this was Doctor Who's first season. The people who were writing the scripts were kind of writing it in the dark, and you know the show had a 1,200-pound budget per week, so there was a limit to what they could realize. The Sensorites look a little bit silly with their cardboard floppy feet, and also because uh, Peter R. Newman is writing this in the dark, he didn't include as much action as he would have done had this been a season two story. So there are slow stretches. So in episode two, it takes Ian and Barbara three and a half minutes to walk down one short corridor because they had to walk more slowly because otherwise the script was going to be seriously underrunning. So if you try to watch the Sensorites in movie format, the way it was aired in the States in the 1980s, I know one of the PBS stations that I had access to in New York, um, uh, Channel 44 out of Scranton, Pennsylvania, they tried to run all six episodes of the Sensorites as a PBS pledge drive special in the middle of a Saturday afternoon. And they couldn't understand why nobody was calling them up with pledge money during the pledge breaks in between each episode. So I feel bad for the Sensorites in that regard. It's not the easiest story to watch if you're trying to watch it all in one go. So, all right, those are the problems with the Sensorites. But Mark, you put your you put the nail right on the head. If you think about the two monster speed, not counting the Vord, because we're not quite sure if they're you know monsters are just men in funny hats. If you look at the monsters of season one, the Daleks and the Sensorites, if you were to ask people which is the more memorable monster. If you ask 100 people, 101 are going to say the Daleks and negative one are going to say the Sensorites. But the Daleks are Nazi robots. The design is incredible and the voices are incredible. You, you can get Nazi robots anywhere. The Sensorites are philosophical aliens who are scared of the dark. So that's a mind-blowing concept because – these are fully rounded aliens. They have phobias. Not too many Doctor Who monsters have phobias, unless you're the Cybermen who have one convenient different phobia in each story that can be exploited. And the other point is that most alien races fall into the Star Trek The Next Generation model. So there's one cultural trait, and every single member of the alien species has that same one cultural trait. The Sensorites are incredibly varied. I mean, you have the xenophobe, 
you have the sycophant, you have the noble but doomed second sensorite, you have the first sensorite who's almost an enlightened leader, except that he's presiding over a caste system and he doesn't even realize that's a bad thing. And then you have the scientist caste and you have the warrior caste and then you have the regular sensorites who work and play. They have different water supplies. Peter R. Newman put a lot of thought into giving us an alien species. It would be a very long time before Doctor Who gave us another alien species that were as richly designed as the sensorites would be. And again, it's going to sound like I'm trolling because the sensorites is not a top 200 story, but I am deadly serious. If you take away defects in the production values and in the pacing and in the 1964 budget, if you were to take the sensorites and put them in the new series, they would be a smash hit. And oh wait, they did. The Ood are the sensorites. Their planet is called the Ood Sphere. They're deliberately mentioned on screen as cousins to the sensorites. And the Ood work incredibly well, and they came back over and over in the RTD era. And now that we're going to get the RTD era take two, maybe we'll get the Ood again. So the sensorites work, and we have them, so to speak, in the new series. And I think the story has to be celebrated just for that reason alone, even though so far I've been a lone voice in, in the wilderness talking about this. It's interesting you say that because it's kind of like it's it's like we spoke about in the Keys and Moranis uh, podcast. You know, Terry Nation was very good at world building. He does kind of like a lot of the sci-fi cliches like acid seas, you know, ice planets, you know, that kind of stuff. Whereas like Peter R. Newman's doing world building but doing it from a like a complete like different scale and giving the the alien species like like you say, a whole like you know, background which, you know, you don't get in the keys of Moranus. So it shows like obviously how good a, a writer he was that he was able to like do that with uh, you know, the Alien of the Week effectively. And have you guys watched Peter R. Newman's movie Yesterday's Enemy? No. No. It's a World War II picture that came out in 1959 from Hammer. And it's got three um, Doctor Who act. Well, three actors appeared in one Doctor Who story each. Uh, there's a very small part for uh, Binro the Heretic. There's a very small part for Lin Futu from Fort of Doomsday as a Japanese soldier. But it's a World War II picture that takes place in Burma. It's a lost British patrol that commandeers a Burmese village, that they commit a war crime very early in the picture. Uh, one of the residents of the Burmese village is Wolf Morris, who later played Padma Sambhava in The Abominable Snowman. And as so often happens in British cinema and television, you take an actor of Jewish descent who is considered exotic, and you make him play an Asian role. So Wolf Morris is playing a Burmese soldier. And that, you know, doesn't look great because he's in yellow face, but that's just what British movies did. You kind of had to accept it and, and move on. Um, so there's a little bit of a Doctor Who connection, but the basic plot of the movie, a troop of soldiers who have to commit an atrocity in the middle of a war, and the movie is very gritty and realistic and downbeat. I think Toby Hado points us out on the DVD, um, where he did a Peter R. Newman documentary. Yesterday's enemy is basically the sensorites without aliens set in the Burmese jungle. 
and there are clear parallels between uh, one and the other. And something else we haven't talked about yet, because I want to give other folks a chance to speak, but I have so much to say about the Censorites. <laughs> the last two episodes of the Censorites completely flips the story on its head, okay? So part one could all be condensed into a three-minute cold open today, but it's 25 very slow minutes. Then the two main driving forces in part one, which is called Strangers in Space, number one, you have this evil crewman locked into the back of the ship named John who's gone, who's gone bad. And then you have these terrifying aliens lurking outside. And the very first cliffhanger is the sensorite's face peering in through the window. So it's the first Doctor Who monster reveal cliffhanger the show had done, not counting the Dalek sink plunger at the end of the dead planet. Both of those are complete misdirections. John turns out to be a good guy. That particular sensorite turns out to be a good guy. In the middle of the story, the bad guy is the city administrator, who's the xenophobe and his sycophant. There's a very uh, great line from the first sensorite. Uh, no opinion can be worse sometimes than a very dogmatic one, talking about the sycophant. But at the end of the sensorites, it turns out that the bad guys are actually human – soldiers who had been left behind when their ship exploded and have gone crazy and they're still fighting a war against quote-unquote yesterday's enemy out of the aqueduct and at the end of the sensorites the doctor allows the head human villain to keep his dignity because he's gone insane from uh, you know the war and he really thought he was committing atrocities in the name of the british empire the same as the troop does in yesterday's enemy so the fact that you can take a pretty good world war ii picture and turn it into a doctor who episode with monsters this was like the only story that peter r newman was able to tell because he developed writer's block and he never really did anything after the censorites but this one story is it was a tv uh, movie then it was a cinematic movie then it was a stage play and then it was a doctor who episode if you only have this one story to tell in your life, it's a really good story to tell over and over again. And it works as a World War II picture as much as it works as, as a Doctor Who script. So it's on YouTube now. You can just you know stream it for free. I got about halfway through it last night before I collapsed after my weekend's vacationing. But it's really interesting to look at. And there's a few Doctor Who actors. And I, I, uh, I give it a recommendation, same as I recommend heartily The Censorites. Yeah, that's that, that's quite right. I think um, I was I was actually making some notes as you said that because there's a couple of interesting points you raised there. Um, first one I want to mention is about the Ood in the new series, who are who are clearly linked to the Sensorites. Um, but I didn't really see, apart from one Ood with a large brain, we don't get that kind of um, uh, mix of characters uh, that you do with the Ood that you do in the, the Sensorites seem more developed. Um, which is very odd for a, a 1963 or 1964 version of Doctor Who to, to feel more developed and sophisticated than uh, Doctor Who in the 21st century. Um, I, I don't know how anyone else feels about that. Yeah, completely. I still don't think we see that many civilizations where where there's that much of an attempt to show, like you say, how they live, what their um, civilized, what their society is like. The you know the caste system is is a different take on it. Um, it's something you'd see more like Babylon Five, the uh, Minbari, is it? They've got the where they've got different castes, where they're um, there's warriors and different things. Yeah, so right. yeah, it's sort of an interesting take on a on a, on a race like that. 
Um, but no, it's just something. I mean, we, we don't. If you go to alien planets, it's normally a quarry, isn't it? It's not normally a city. It's where people just kind of live and work in that way. It's done very much like, you know, throughout the history of, of classic Doctor Who and in some extent, you know, even new series Doctor Who, it's alien civilizations are painted with extremely broad strokes and you don't get that depth of kind of like background to the alien species. I mean, you know, compare the, the Sensorites to the Draconians, you know, you don't, you know, yeah, the Draconians are a fantastic idea, you know, and unfortunately we've only ever seen them really like once in the show, but you don't know much beyond the fact that they have like an, an Emperor Draconian and they're kind of like based on Samurai culture. That That's effectively it. That's all you find out about them. Whereas there's probably the potential to really, really expand on a lot of alien species that you see throughout the show's history. Mm. If, um, I can see the sensorites working as a society, it, but I couldn't see the Ood working as a society, particularly when they're running around carrying their own brains and yeah. things. It's just a bit odd. Um, I think Planet of the Ood does go a long way to address that because we see that they've been wrongfully enslaved by humanity in what is a really strong anti-colonial story. But they have the foresight to scheme against the governor of the colony and they fundamentally transform him at the end of Planet of the Ood. So even at the beginning of Planet of the Ood, the doctor kind of accepts that the Ood deserve to be enslaved and by the end of the story, he leads their liberation so Planet of the Ood, I think, is meant to give them a little more depth than they had in Impossible Planet um, slash the Satan Pit. But again, like you say, they don't get the full development that the Sensorites get, which is unusual to bring back an alien species and not do as much with them as the classic series did. Usually it's the other way around. Mm. Um, this, I, I, this is kind of a, a story of two halves as well, the Sensorites, because you've got... Uh, you, I, uh, looking at my fact book, uh, there are two directors working on this, aren't there? There's Mervyn Pinfield for episodes one to three, and then you get uh, Frank Cox for uh, the last three episodes. Um, and Jason, you mentioned about the bit at the beginning where uh, you've got Ian and Barbara walking through the ship for three and a half minutes. Um, and uh, literally the only thing that going, is going on is, is Ian's just using his eyes and looking left and right, left and right a bit more. Um <laughs> But that sequence could have been utterly terrifying with the right kind of direction. And maybe for 60s audience, perhaps it was a bit more engaging. Um, but you, you can imagine them creeping through a creeping through a ship is it, that with a you know there's a monster around somewhere. That's stock Doctor Who, isn't it? Um, I just wanted to contrast that with later on, I think it's episode four or five where the doctor's finding the cure for the disease and you get a montage of different scenes uh where you're looking at the, the sense rights you're looking at ian being ill and then you come back to the doctor and he's got different test tubes and vials and things and knowing the way that 60s doctor who was filmed that is a very technically impressive sequence um because a montage like that, you think you're cutting from people who are doing all of this live and moving stuff around. Um, that must have been really challenging to do. Um, yeah, you've got to coordinate all five cameras in Lime Grove D, which was about the size of a shoebox. The cameras can't bump into each other. You have to have actors on all of the sets working in sequence. 
it's I think the only other season one story that tries a live in studio montage like that is the Reign of Terror, and the Reign of Terror famously gave its director a nervous breakdown during the making of. Then Frank Cox pulls it off without breaking a sweat. I, th- I think you're right. That, that is a pretty stunning achievement for, for the back half of the story. Do you think uh, then that there is? Uh, do you think Frank Cox is better than Mervyn Pinfield? And that the first three episodes are not as good as the last three episodes. One thing that hurts the censor rights on its surface is that the acting is not well great. Um, especially the guy who plays Captain Maitland, which fortunately he disappears halfway through the story. So Frank Cox is working with the actors that Mervyn Pinfield cast. However, there's this concept called found poetry, which is not meant to be poetry, but you can rearrange it as poetry and it works terrific in blank verse. Mm. And I've seen it done with some rather malapropism-heavy sports broadcasters here in the United States. They take some of their... Uh, misstatements, turn, turn them into actual books of poetry. Um, but the fluffs, and there are many dialogue fluffs in the censorites, the fluffs actually work better than the lines that are scripted. So when Bill Hartnell says, I rather fancy that settled that little bit of solution, it's a fluff, but it's a terrific line. And then he says, these watches are of the non-winding time which is a fluff, but it works better because you have the play on watch and time. And then you have that poor stammering censorite in part four or five who is trying to say, I overheard them talking and can't say it. And he takes up about 20 seconds, which is a lot of real estate, trying to say, I heard them over, over, I heard them over talking. (laughs) On my Facebook, on this day memories feed last week, I actually saw myself use that (laughs) In, in, in a, I was talking about some funny thing that I heard uh, a toddler say on a subway platform, and I, I said in my status, I heard him over-talking, and nobody picked up on it. But it's, it's just, the line is wrong, but it comes out better. It's a great expression, I heard them over-talking. It, it works, and I've actually used it in my daily life as Facebook memories has, has proven. So even the parts of the story that don't work, the acting, actually work because the fluffs are better than – if they had just delivered the lines right, nobody would remember them. But these fluffs have taken on a life of their own. And I think a lot of people talk about this story and they talk about the the ridiculous idea that the censorites, you know, once they change their sashes, um, that they, you know, they don't recognize each other. That's not actually in the story, is it? What they say is from a distance. Well, originally when... Um, when the human astronaut gives the the evil sensor right the idea, she says, "Oh, you know, we wouldn't be able to tell you apart without your, the, you know, the kind of markings on your uniforms." And he says, uh, "As you so brilliantly delivered earlier, Jason, I had never thought of that." <laughs> I did that two or three times during our recording with Eric for the uh, Dalek novelization by, yeah. <laughs> by, by Rob Sherman. But I, I want to rebut that too because the sensorites are a race of telepaths. Wouldn't it make sense that they recognize each other by their thought broadcast rather than their face? I mean, if, if you're a telepathic species, facial features become less important because you're yeah. not looking to the person. You're listening to the person. But but they're only trying to fool the other humans, aren't they? Um, so so when he change, when he takes the sash from the second elder, he's not trying to fool other sensorites. He just says, from a distance, uh, other sensorites will, won't realize it's me because they are all physically different, you know, as we uh, – as we alluded to earlier, they're, they're not um, all identical, like a lot of alien races in Doctor Who. 
Yeah. And I, I think also it's it's well established that their eyesight isn't very good and it's not like yeah. human eyesight. So I think it, in the, it, like on its own, it sounds ridiculous. Um, but I, yeah, in context, I agree. I think I think actually, if you think about the sensor rights, yes, that is that is actually a logical uh, thing for them to uh, to do. Although I am concerned that nobody thought of it before, and they're not all running around pretending to be each other. Um, but as I mean, they they don't they would still recognise each other. They're only trying to fool the humans when they do that, ah. or, or the sensor rights from a distance. There isn't any sense like they're not in conversation with another sensorite just wearing the sash and not recognised, are they? I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, no, that's, that's... Um, but I think that's one of the things that sort of like has become like a bit of a kind of fan myth about the story, um, but but isn't actually borne out in the uh, in the story. Because I was sort of thought that, but I watched it this time. I thought, no, it doesn't quite work like that. Yeah. But yeah, the thing about them being scared of the dark as well is that's quite relatable to kids as well. It was making me think, you know, as as you go from the switch from thinking that they're monsters in the first couple of episodes to them being sympathetic, it's a good way of making them a little bit sympathetic to children um, that, you know, they share that, that fear with a lot of kids. Mm, that's right. Um, and there's, there's another point about the story that might not have gotten noticed in 1964, but it certainly resonates right now. So there are these humans underneath the city that are poisoning the sensorites because again, they're, they're fighting a war that they didn't realize has ended years and years ago. Ian, catches the, uh, the the poisoning, the nightshade poisoning, and he collapses in studio during the Part 3 cliffhanger. The city administrator, who's a xenophobe, legitimately believes that the virus is a hoax. And when the doctor comes up with a cure for the virus, <laughs> he believes that the cure is a hoax. Flash forward 57 years to red state GOP-led America. You have significant portions of those of you who follow me on Twitter, I do two things on Twitter. Number one, I tweet my way through the classic series. And number two, I engage with right-wing trolls, um, <laughs> often not very successfully because my followers count tends to drop whenever I go off on a political run. There's a significant number of Americans who believe that COVID is the flu or is a hoax. And there's a significant number of Americans right now – we have this, this vaccine which works wonders. And there's a lot of people who refuse to get it because they think it's a hoax. New York State just had to fire a couple of thousand nurses who belong to the small political movement that don't believe that the vaccine is real. The New York City Department of Education just had to fire a bunch of school teachers. One of my kids' teachers had to resign last week because they refused to get vaccinated. I mean, the fact that the city administrator is a COVID truther in 1964 <laughs> and that we are still fighting this today and now – it's become a movement of political rebellion where you have these angry brown shirt parents showing up at school board meetings and are threatening violence and murder to school administrators who are mandating vaccines and masks for their school district. The fact that we have this vaccine that has become a cultural flashpoint on the alt-right and people are literally quitting their jobs or threatening violence because they don't want to take the cure because they believe the cure is fake – the sensor rights is happening right here in this country and I'm living through it and I can't believe we have to fight this stuff because the doctor saved the day for us. 
then nobody's listening to the doctor, Dr. Fauci or Dr. Hartnell. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I don't have much memory of this story. I don't think I'd watched it since uh, it came out on VHS. So as I was watching this and making notes, you know, I, I just put as a laugh in my, you know, notes as, as Ian starts coughing and then collapses, I put Ian gets COVID. And then, like you say, it takes on a whole new meaning, like, you know, 57 years on. And it, it's that montage of, obviously, when they're trying to, like, find the cure and they're trying to, like, work out which districts are clear. And, you know, the first district is negative. The second district is negative. They're writing down. And I thought, wow, that that's kind of like a huge, like, a coronavirus uh, analogy of, obviously, you know, how we try and, like, keep it contained and how we you know do this like whole uh, track and trace program you know yeah yeah i i think it also goes to show there ain't nothing new under the sun as they say (laughs) (laughs) all this has happened before and i'm sure peter was pulling on past experiences of uh people ignoring the science for political ends Mm. um which is i think it's it's what it's primarily about and yeah, I, I don't know. That, that's a whole other world of uh, topic. Why people don't believe in coronavirus or why people don't believe the evidence that's been given to them um, and for what reasons they decide these things. Um, well, I mean, if you could probably, you know, we're going off on a bit of a tangent here, but I think the the internet is, um, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful invention, but it has sort of like amplified the um, the idiots out there, you know, the flat earthers, the moon hoaxers, the the people who don't believe that COVID actually exists, you know. Um, whereas, like these kind of people, you know, 30, 40 years ago were just like in kind of like little pockets of their own, and you know couldn't get their views out and amplified to the world like they can now with with the world wide web i love the idea that the all the governments of the world can't agree on anything at all except to hoax their own citizens uh, <laughs> <laughs> a virus and that, and that there's a, um, a vaccine for it you know it takes years and years to do trade deals or anything else but when it comes to playing a prank on your own citizens they just all just sign up immediately if these people were organized in 1953 when Dr. Salk cured polio, we would still have polio. Mm, polio yeah. was eradicated because of the vaccine. And COVID could have been eradicated six months ago or on the, on the road to eradication. But now you have this organized set of neo-fascists who believe that they have the, the, the virus has a right to freedom. Uh, I, 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 I just can't. Let's change the topic, please. <laughs> I'm very disappointed. I can't remember. I don't think we saw the sensorites use their disintegrator. Correct me if I'm wrong. I might have lost concentration, but we didn't see anyone disintegrated, did we? No. No. <sighs> Such a shame. That, that could have been like, that could have raised them to the level of the Daleks if they'd have been disintegrating people all over the place. Which break one of the cardinal rules, doesn't it? That's Chekhov's disintegrator. If you show a disintegrator in episode one, you have to show it fired by the end of the story. That's got to be the title of this Trap One episode, Chekhov's disintegrator. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it is one thread that doesn't get picked up necessarily, and it is a bit sort of like, uh, I think it's it's probably just a bit of filler. Um, but yeah, it, it, and then, um, so we see the, the man John as well, as he's known, the man John, <laughs> and his, uh, his fantastic headgear that they make him wear to cure his brain from uh, the way they damaged it in the first place. Um, uh, so John and Carol, um, what do we think of their relationship, such as it is? 
isn't it beautiful? Uh, (laughs) These are these are two mature adults, and he's become disabled, and she cares for him. And at the end, he gets his mind back, and they presumably live happily ever after. Uh, I mean, there weren't a lot of love stories in season one. We talked a little bit last time, uh, Mark and British Jason, about Altos and Sabitha. These guys are fascists, and maybe we're not supposed to be cheering on their love match. (laughs) But I think uh, the man John and Carol, uh, the acting on Carol perhaps wasn't going to get her a, a series lead status. And John is played by the same guy who played Yartek in Keys of Marinus. So he's doing this pivot from villain acting to good guy acting. I just think they're a really adorable little couple, and I would totally ship them. Yeah, it's it's one aspect of the story that, uh, again, probably doesn't ever get mentioned because people don't talk about it much. But um, there's a real kind of like, once they get settled down in the sense sphere, things suddenly become very domestic, um, particularly the way Susan's behaving and, uh, you know, taking the mickey out of the sense rights a bit with their flapping feet. Um, and and Ian, Ian, at one point, Ian finds their, their family photos from the selection and says, oh, look at these, there's a bunch of family photos. It's, 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 it's all really nice. Um, it's really charming. Um, and, and I think that's this story's great strength is that it is charming in many ways. It's not especially exciting but it's very easy to be won over by it um uh, english jason uh, do you feel you were won over by it or or were you immune to its charms well i do have a confession here um on re-watching this story last week i did have to watch it um twice because i fell asleep <laughs> at one point <laughs> um so you know it didn't quite um you know grab me like um some other stories do but it does have a, a little a charm to it you know and i think it fits in nicely to you know season one and you know it does that unique thing of having the, the aliens who aren't really a threat, you know, and, and that's the first instance that you get really uh, in Doctor Who. And, and it's interesting, like from you know the rest of the series of Doctor Who, how the aliens become the monsters, you know, and that's not really repeated or, or gone back to you know quite a lot of times during the classic series. From episode one, which I, I think um, someone said. The you know the first part was the weeks for me. I think episode one is the most interesting, strongest episode. The the threats just seems much more kind of um, ethereal in that one. The way the nature of the sensorites. Um, there's something maybe a little bit Quatermass about it, where you know um, I haven't seen a lot of Quatermass, but you know it seems to be a lot of like effect on people's minds and that type of thing, which makes the the sensorites seem much more powerful. And then once you get to their planet, it, it's more about like they've got machines for different things. Whereas initially it just seems like they just have these powers over people's minds. And, and that maybe would have been interesting to continue in that vein um, rather than to, to just see that they're just sort of like quite boring sort of um, politicians and, uh, <laughs> uh you know, you kind of, uh, you, you see that side of the society a bit. So for me, after the first episode, it, it kind of loses a bit of um, a bit of interest if they, if they continue that really sort of creepy vein. Um, and it was just about these two races that struggled to communicate. So they weren't necessarily evil, which it is what it's about, but the sense rights do, do become a bit more human, I suppose, by the end. 
something right. that slows the sensorites down, perhaps, is this is this is season one. It's the very first time we've landed on a spaceship. This is the one story that bears the burden of establishing what is a spaceship. How can the TARDIS be stationary but moving at the same time? How do people get water on a spaceship? No other Doctor Who story has to deal with this again because the show becomes a straight science fiction show and you, you suddenly land on spaceships two or three times a season. This story has to take a lot of time out to explain the concept of the spaceship, which is why I say that part one could have been condensed into a three-minute mm. cold open today. But Mark, I like the point that you make. Because we're on a spaceship, there's a lot of abstract dangers. You have a locked door that um, people have real trouble getting through. You have the humans who are mind-controlled from a distance. You have the sensor, the sensorites threaten to crash the ship, and there's this dramatic sequence where the doctor has to help the captain and Carol remember how to steer the ship. Uh, no other Doctor Who story has to take the time, the time to do this, and it could put you to sleep because here we are. We know what a spaceship is. We know all this stuff. But this is the story that has to introduce those concepts, and it takes its time to do that. And it's slow on the one hand for us, but I think it would have been very clever and groundbreaking in 1964. I don't know if you guys mm. agree with my attempt to rehabilitate a boring slow sequence, but I think it was done for a reason, and I think it has merit. Oh, I, I agree totally. Um, so first point I want to make is looking at this in context, um, I, I think I mentioned this when I was talking about the Daleks a while back, but looking at Doctor Who in 1963-1964 and looking at what has been on television previously and what has been in the movies, you've got um, uh, the Robbie the Robot film, which I forget the name of. It's Forbidden Planet. Forbidden Planet, of course. But you've got Out of the Unknown, you've got The Avengers, which is almost as quirky, uh, and you've got uh, the forerunner to this is Journey into Space, which is interesting but trite. Uh, and then you have um, all the sort of like action serials with ro really, 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 really bad robots. So this is new and exciting and psychedelic in ways that those series just aren't. And, and in context, Doctor Who in the 60s is mind-blowing. It is every episode, even the sensorites, is just like, wow, what, what is this thing I'm seeing on my telly? And the other thing I want to say is I can't think of another story where they do a one-shot from the TARDIS console room right into the spaceship. Yeah. Mm, mm. Not for a long time. Not until the Doctor dances, possibly. Any takers? Uh, there were a couple of times in the 70s when the TARDIS doors open and you can see the alien, alien planet set and the mm. Doctor and Joe walk out from the console room onto Auxarius or the Doctor and Sarah walk out from the TARDIS console room onto the planet of the Exelons. But, but uh, yeah, the Sensorites does it first, and it takes a long time for somebody else to copy that. You're right. But again, once you've done it, you don't have to bother again. You know, you've shown that it happens, and uh, then you can just say, oh, well, they're inside, they're outside now. So, yeah, but I, I, I agree that it, taking it in context, it is, it is very different um, – than looking at it now and uh, and yeah it does set up all these stories in this first year set up something don't they um they they take the tardis somewhere new and that's that's for a first run through that's very exciting i think and the other big thing about this story is that it gives susan 
uh, much more depth th than usual. She has the, the conflict with the Doctor and she's got the psychic abilities. So it's it's, it's pretty much confirmed here that they're aliens, I think. Or that, they, you know, they, they are different in that way that she's got psychic powers. Um, I love, as we talked about before, the Doctor just taking control of the spaceship. Um, that he just knows how to fly spacecraft is i think is fantastic as well and it's much more like the doctor would be as the character develops over the years as well well um, i mean susan was originally uh, designed wasn't she with that psychic ability i think it's mm -hmm. it's there in the very early um kind of like series bibles that they were putting together um and uh, i'm sure caroline ford um you know, expressed that's one of the reasons why she kind of like left the series, like, you know, early in season two, because, you know, she'd been promised all this character development and all these extra character traits, and they never really get fulfilled. You know, I don't think her psychic abilities are really kind of like mentioned uh, in anything else bar the, uh, the Sensorites. She only has three stories left after this. Now the doctor threatens to spank her in, in, in one in one of them. <laughs> I, I was going to say this is the story where she reminisces that, that her home planet, where the leaves on the trees are bright silver and the sky is a burnt orange, which which is more poetry, by the way. And I think by the time we get to the new series, the Gallifreyan skies are orange on CGI because this is the story that tells us that. Mm. Because the, uh, the Tenth Doctor describes it to Martha that way as well, um, like early in Series 3, doesn't he? Um, but I think watching this in close succession to the Keys of Marinus, Susan is much less screaming and fearful in this one. Uh, you know, she's, she, she's got that bit much more sort of brave and plucky, and when she volunteers to go off with the Sensorites, there's, there's much more about her here isn't there yeah she's she's definitely a lot stronger in this story um and and yeah giving her that psychic ability is 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 wonderful because i think it opens her character up and it's a real shame that at the end of the story the doctor says to her oh basically your psychic ability isn't going to work anymore oh well never mind <laughs> would have been nice glad you can't <laughs> read my mind ha 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 i'm going to be getting rid of you soon um <laughs> But yeah, I, and then we, of course we've got uh, Barbara and Ian as well. Ian does what Ian always does. He's the leading man and he's great. And I think he overacts quite heavily when he's, he starts drinking the water and coughing and, and falling over. <laughs> I, th I think that's uh, quite amazingly overplayed, but, but it's fun. Rob um, Shearman takes the opposite approach, by the way, in Running Through Carter's Volume 1. He plays up on the fact that these shows were done live to tape, and when a character starts coughing, you don't believe it's part of the plot. You believe it's just the actor coughing, and you you, you ignore yeah. it. And here, that cough becomes the cliffhanger. But um, that's me plugging running through corridors. Uh, <laughs> everything in that book is gold, including uh, Rob and Toby's take on the sensorites. <laughs> Carrying on. <laughs> uh yeah, no, you're right, you're right, because, yes, because now, if anyone coughs on television, and probably since 1970, if anyone coughs on television, you know that they are about to fall over or die or, or whatever. Um, and obviously that would be different in the 60s. Uh, and then we've got Barbara, who um, I think if she'd have come down from the ship with them, they'd have wrapped it up in four episodes, because she's so competent uh, when mm. she comes back, and it's it's always nice to see see her and uh i don't know do we miss her for our two episodes where she's away particularly oh oh yeah a lot of us miss jacqueline hill <laughs> yeah they keep mentioning her as well 
so that um, it's probably to remind the viewer where she is, but I think you miss her more because they keep talking about her, so you're conscious of her absence. Yeah. Must have had a pretty dull time with Maitland on the, uh, <laughs> on the ship. She got a nice two-week holiday out of it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Comes back with a suntan. <laughs> yeah, apparently she went to the Seychelles. Um, also, so I've been told anyway. Oh, very nice. Yeah, lovely. Um, much better, much better than the Sense Sphere. Um, yeah. <laughs> but then, the, I think the set design on the Sense Sphere is brilliant as well. And there's so much interest and detail in the backgrounds, and that whole thing about not having any straight lines and only having curves. And I, I, I think it looks, uh, you know, it it does look a lot like what we get in the chase later on for Mechanus. It, that's got a very similar aesthetic. Um, it's Raven Cusack um, working miracles again on, like you say, uh, American Jason, such a limited budget, £1,200 like per episode. And he is really, quite frankly, probably one of the unsung heroes of those early days of Doctor Who with what he could actually do from a designer point of view. He got £25 for creating the Daleks, where in any just world he would have gotten £25 million annually for the work that he did i mean it's it's amazing what he was able to do with no budget on a limited shoestring the vision that he had uh, i mean definitely one of our show's unsung heroes quite right and it's so it's so beautifully 60s as well it's so of its time and and it's got that kind of that kind of i don't know beatles album cover kind of feel or pink floydy kind of feel to it that the just the again just the absence of straight lines and then I don't know, the, the complexity of it all. I think it's I think it's rather wonderful to look at. Well, again, it, it's avoiding those kind of like B-movie sci-fi cliches that you probably would have got, like you said, in like other TV series that were around at the time, like your, your Pathfinder's Journey into Space, which was quite cliched and B-movie-ish, uh, which ITV did a couple of years before. And, you know, and it's interesting that, you know, Raymond Cusack isn't really approaching it from like a sci-fi point of view. He's looking at, you know, inspiration from historical architecture and then applying that into the story. So he's not doing the the cliched B-movie sci-fi set. But I love that the humans have the little rocket ships on their uniforms and the sensorized scientist's badge of office is not a sash, but a picture of an Erlenmeyer flask. That's, that's adorable. Yeah, that's because uh, that one with that image in my head of their uniforms, it made me think for a long time that this was the most sort of nineteen fifties style Doctor Who story. That it was um, that they were very Dan Dare, the sort of the um, uh, the space people. Um, uh, and they, they have that kind of aesthetic to them. But looking back on it and watching it more recently, um, I, I don't think that's true at all. I think it's just as uh, experimental and as exciting as the Daleks in its way. Um, it's possibly just not as well realised. Mm. Oh, you obviously think it is definitely as well realised. No, no, no. no. <laughs> you, you have to overlook a lot of faults in the production to enjoy the story but the, the script is so underrated this is this is a story about understanding it is a story about prejudice it is a story about unconscious bias even before we knew what the term unconscious bias was every character in the story has to undertake a journey of self-discovery we think john is bad he's not 
we think the Sensorite warriors are bad. They're not. We have to learn how to interact with an alien species whose philosophy and way of thought is entirely alien to ours. We have human soldiers who believe they're fighting a war and are committing atrocities upon civilians in the name of their crown. Uh, we have the Doctor and Susan learning how to communicate because Susan defies him in the story. This is a story about, again, personal growth. This is a story about what are my beliefs? How are my beliefs challenged when I come across an alien species that has a very different structure and a very different civilization? What can I do to bridge the gap between my prejudices and this other alien species? Most other Doctor Who stories of the time are not doing this, but The Sensorites is a story of self-improvement, and it's a story of growth, and it's a story of discovery, as much as it's a B-movie picture about soldiers and poison and slaves and alien disintegrators. So on that regard alone, The Sensorites has much to praise it, if you can overlook the um, soporific nature of the production and some of the acting choices and some of the verbal fluffs. But... uh, Thank you for coming to my TED Talk <laughs> and Radio Hour. This is Manoush Zomorodi. Yeah. It's a, a beautiful point to, to finish on there. I think uh, at its heart that, that that is exactly what the story is about. Uh, so it just remains to, to ask where our listeners can find each of you on the internet. So um, as our guest, um, Steve, first. Uh, yes, uh, the place I want you to most find me on the internet is on my Instagram account, uh, which is Steve Alexander Toys, S-T-E Alexander Toys. Uh, if you just do a search for that, I'm usually under the hashtag, hashtag Doctor Who Toys, so you can pick me up that way. But there are, there are so many great toy photographers out there. There are ones that I am intensely jealous of, um, such as Scarrow City Council, Paul Gibbs, um, and a number of others who I'm going to neglect to mention. I feel very sorry. But um, there's there's a big community on Instagram for toy photography, and it's always a delight. So do check us out. You can find me on Twitter at DjangoMac72, where I tweet about usual geeky things. Uh, I'm currently in the middle of doing a uh, 31 Days of Horror movie marathon, so we're tweeting about various horror films that I'm watching uh, every day. And also, you can find me on YouTube. My channel is called Bearded Geek Toy Reviews, where I review the latest uh, toy and action figures, including the B&M Doctor Who range. I am on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels. As I say every time, there is a second account called Doctor Who Novels, uh, but mine is DR Who. And I'm also utilizing the hashtag, the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage, DR Who Pilgrimage. And I have been tweeting my way through the classic series last night was the two doctors part two um tonight as we record this is the two doctors part three i'll probably be at the end of season two 22 or the beginning of season 23 uh by the time this this comes to air but i'm reaching the end of the classic series it is now uh, mid-october and i'll be done probably by late November, at which point I will have to move on to the Wilderness Years and then the new series. Although I might take a nine-day break at some point, probably in between seasons 22 and 23, because I am desperate to watch Squid Game, which is South (laughs) Korean television doing the Celestial Toymaker. And I am so desperate to watch. I may actually have to stop watching Doctor Who for the first time in, in a year 
because I really need to make the time to watch Squid Game, which is now on Netflix in the U.S. Cool. Jason, are you going to be reading the new adventure novels? So it's funny that you mentioned that because I, I did obviously part one of the, the new adventures uh, retrospective documentary for Trap One over the summer. I'm in the planning stages of part two, which is going to which is going to cover the 1992 and 1993 novels. The problem is the reason that I'm able to watch 45 minutes of Doctor Who a night is because my job is still on COVID pandemic lockdown. I have a national employer, and we are tied by the fact that large portions of the country refuse to get the vaccine and are having very bad health outcomes. I have not been commuting. I've been working from home every day for the last 19 months. So I have all this spare time to watch Doctor Who and tweet about it. But what I probably don't have time for is I do most of my reading on the subway when I'm commuting to and from work, and I've lost that during the pandemic. So I've been trying to read a lot of the missing adventures and past Doctor adventures to go along with the TV pilgrimage, but the time just isn't there. I think reading 61 new adventures in 61 days is just not (laughs) going to happen. But what I'll do is I'll read two or three of them, and then I will have, um, as I did with um, Mark and with Graham Burke for my first new adventures Trap One documentary – I will have a panel discussion where we discuss two or three of the books. So I may, uh, you know, read like a Warhead or reread a Love and War or uh, read the Left-Handed Hummingbird again, just to discuss it on the, the next Trap One New Adventures documentary part two. But as much as I would love to read all sixty-one books again, I just don't think I'm going to have the time, pandemic or no pandemic. But it's a really good, it's a really, it's a really fair point because. My channel is called Doctor Who Novels, and I haven't been doing a lot of novels lately. <laughs> Fair play. Cool, and you can follow the, the podcast on Twitter, at Trap1 underscore. Also find us on Facebook and Instagram, and all our previous episodes are at trap1.podbean.com or, or on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>